Hello and welcome to a fresh episode of NBRI New Business and Retail Insights from the Center for Retail Studies, Maine's Business School, Texas A&M University. I'm your host, Benki Shankar, Director of Research and Coleman Chair, Professor of Marketing. It is my pleasure to welcome our guest today, Dr. Leandro Gusoni, who's a full-time Professor of Marketing at FGV, EAESP, Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, Leandro has been a visiting scholar at the Darden School of Business, University of Virginia, and at the Harvard Business School. Uh, Leandro has coordinated marketing research at Coca-Cola, Brazil, and developed more than 20 marketing, sales, and strategy consulting projects for more than 15 companies. Uh, Leandro's research has been supported by companies such as Nielsen, Natura, Johnson & Johnson, Louisa Magazine, He's the author or co-author of Shopper Marketing and Metrics for Marketing Communication. He's also an expert on marketing issues in Brazil, and his research includes marketing metrics, e-commerce, channels, trade, and shopper marketing. Welcome, Leandro, to NBRI. How are you doing today? Hello, Venki. Glad to be here. I'm doing well. Thank you. What about yourself? I'm doing great. Thank you. Despite the uh, challenging times, I noticed that Brazil is going through a very uh, rough time with respect to COVID-19. I hope things are um, looking okay now. Yes, yes. Actually, we are bracing for the second wave, but okay. it's a summer time in Brazil. And so far, we are doing uh, well, as expected, at least with the situation. Okay, that's good to know. Um, I introduced you uh, using your achievements, but how would you like to introduce yourself, Leandro, in your own way? Uh, so that what are some of the mentioned five words that best describes you, right? Um, what makes you uh, tick? What keeps you awake? And what is your mission, etc.? Sure, thank you. Uh, well, actually, I am. Uh, I like to build strong relationship. Maybe this is one of my uh, strengths. I like to connect good people and form you know, uh, new networks, bringing together different scholars, executives, connecting people in general. To me, it's like building a band. I used to play uh, the piano. So you need to put good people uh, like guitar players, vocalists, someone to play the bass and drums and the keyboard. So I like to connect people and build strong uh, relationships. Uh, I would also describe myself as a very driven, uh, I'm very driven by purpose. You know, Venki, this could be good, but sometimes it punishes you. <laughs> For example, uh, I would rather go and work with people that I admire and see, and that I see uh, common values than to spend time, you know, playing political games or doing things that I, I just cannot understand the reason why. This is another okay. aspect. Great. So I, I love your description and analogy to music. So your relationship builder and more uh, importantly, a, an orchestrator of relationships, right? If you were to combine the music analogy, right? Uh, that's good to know. Uh, tell me something about your research. I know you've uh, you worked in companies before you started your academic journey. How would you summarize your research journey? in the next couple of minutes. What were some of the key uh, turning points in your research journey? Sure, Venki. Uh, I do research on marketing mix effectiveness, multi-channel marketing and customer-centric digital disruption. 
I've always prioritized establishing myself as a person who bridges the gap between theory and practice. You know, as you mentioned, I, I started working in the industry and then I moved into the uh, academia. And in this sense, my research journey is really connected with my mentors, uh, Paul Ferris and Raj Bekatensen from the Darden School, Thales Teixeira, a former Harvard Business School Associate Professor of Marketing, and Marcos Favaneves, who was my PhD supervisor and he's a faculty at the University of Sao Paulo uh, and Purdue University. But let me just take a step, a step back, if you allow me, because as you mentioned, my research journey is connected with the early stage of my career. I have a finance background. Uh, I, probably I haven't mentioned that to you, but, and I started work uh, really young. Uh, I would say that while most of my, my friends were having fun. I started working at Coca-Cola in Brazil when I was 20 years old. And uh, wow. well, I've worked there for five years in marketing and I was always the one trying to measure things such as the return on market investments, the economic value added that would come from the marketing investments. And uh, to do so, I started to read some academic papers including yours, by the way, at that time. Thank you. And, and I just love the possibility of solving real world problems using a scientific approach, which led me to my Master of Science and PhD. So basically I left uh, Coca-Cola in 2000 and 2008, and I went for the Master of Science and PhD. But the turning point, as you asked, was really an email that I sent to the uh, Darden School professor Paul Ferris, one of the you know uh, biggest reference in the field of marketing, marketing metrics. Uh, in 2010, I emailed him, and this is really uh, a fun story. Uh, and uh, and later, I emailed Darden professor Rajvikatens and to ask for a chance to work with them and learn from them because basically I was trying to solve problems that, to be honest with you, I didn't see anyone in Brazil who could help me in solving uh, the types of problems that I was asking, my research questions. And uh, so I was offered a deal uh, where a visiting PhD at Arden could be arranged if a company in Brazil collaborated with our research. You know, uh, I love to work with secondary data and so uh, Paul and Raj. And since I worked at Coca-Cola, I connected the dots and they collaborated with us during our first research uh, and I was basically interested in understanding how consumer packaged good companies such as Coca-Cola and other, you know, CPGs uh, could achieve positive results by managing their brands uh, through different retail formats. Because, you know, in Brazil, we have uh, around 25% of the retail sales goes, uh, it goes through uh, mom-pop stores. And I was interested in understanding marketing mix effectiveness um, for C from a CPG perspective with uh, big box retailers and mom pop stores in emerging uh, markets. So this, is, this was my first research project and I was fortunate enough to publish this work in the Journal of Retailing. And we found that the marketing mix elements uh, varies with the channel format. And for example, advertising was not effective uh, when you were marketing your brand through mom pop stores, for example. Okay. So this type of finding was really strong uh, to me at that time. Right. So it looks like from there you've moved on to 
other topics, as you mentioned, disruption, digital disruption, and so on. So you, you mentioned about Brazil. So let's talk a little bit more about Brazil, uh, the ecosystem in Brazil, right? Uh, Brazil is uh, one of the largest uh, countries, both in population and economy size, and is also uh, one of the four countries in the BRIC uh, emerging market uh, paradigm. And uh, Brazil is going through uh, some growing pains right now. So what are some of the new things that are happening in Brazil's economy? Well, uh, as economy, I would say that um, since 2010, 2011, we've been seeing rapid changes in the economy. For example, uh, GDP, uh, because of the, some political changes, uh, and also because you know uh, Brazilians, and this is uh, uh, this is not me saying, but uh, Brazil is uh, Brazilians are kind of bipolars. You know, they are uh, either really happy and optimistic, or they they are really pessimist. So if you take a look at the consumer confidence index, for example, uh, during this pandemic, for example, wow, uh, it went down dramatically. Uh, in March and April, and then it went up like to the highest levels ever uh, around September in the middle of the pandemic. So, you know, uh, this, this rapid changes in consumer confidence is uh, for me uh, a thing that stood out that can be related with further research, I believe. That's interesting. And um, tell us a little bit about your, some of the work that you've been doing of late with decoupling, for example, and uh, the digital disruption. And it's a very timely because the pandemic has accelerated a lot of shift towards digital. There's a lot of digital transformation. So tell us something about your work in that space. Yeah, sure, sure. Some of the, the latest research I've been doing is on uh, digital disruption. Because after starting uh, to work with uh, the Nielsen data, Coca-Cola data, which was more you know, uh, related to physical stores. Uh, in 2016, I, I wanted to learn about e-commerce strategies and I, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, work with Thales Teixeira at Harvard as a business scholar there. And uh, he coined a term called decoupling. So basically it is a customer-centric digital disruption approach. It's not like the conventional approach more related to technology. Technology is... Uh, are part of digital uh, transformation, but uh, according to, to his perspective, for example, and from his past work at Harvard, it is, uh, it is predominantly uh, a, a phenomenon that would come from a customer. It's a customer-driven phenomenon. And he coined this term decoupling, uh, which is a different way to look at customer activities and the competition between startup companies and uh, you know, traditional incumbent companies. So decoupling is the breaking of the links between customer activities by a digital player uh, that have been traditionally provided together, for example, or uh, Best Buy or Sephora or other retailers. Retailers, and I'm yeah. trying to, uh, uh, sorry, Venki, <laughs> go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, I said, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, so I'm trying to understand how does decoupling, for example, take place in Brazil in comparison with the U.S. Because you know, digital inclusion inclusion has started to uh, accelerate right now, 
And uh, for example, we ha have many new startup businesses in Brazil, as well as Amazon, for example. Before, right. uh, before 2014, Amazon right. Brazil was just a rainforest, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, the real Amazon and, and the behemoth Amazon in retailing and uh, business. Yeah, go ahead. It's true, it's true. Uh, and um, what, what, what is interesting is that, for example, I've worked with Magazine Luiza, one of our largest electronic retailers in Brazil. And they, they were trying to anticipate uh, the Amazon entry in Brazil, for example. So for you to have an idea, I, I, I co-author a Harvard case study uh, with Magazine Luiza, and we started working with Magazine Luiza around uh, in the year of 2015, 2016. And Magazine Luiza's stock price uh, increased by 30,000% since then. But I was too focused on writing the case study and I, 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 I don't have any uh, of their stock. stock. But, but it's interesting how they were responding to, to, uh, to digital disruption and how they were preparing themselves since the early 2000s, learning from the mistakes that Best Buy, Circuit City, you know, in the past and other retailers in the US. Uh, uh, were and the tough competition with early competition with Amazon since the dot com bubble. So, Magazine Luiza, uh, for example, they started to develop their own technology. And instead of following the footsteps of Walmart, that uh, Walmart at that time they were separating the you know the online and the offline businesses, right? right. Magazine Luiza, they they, they went the integrated, yeah. yeah, they integrated so right. they. They, they were able to optimize costs. They were able to, uh, uh, but one interesting aspect was that they were offering different prices according to different channels. So oh. uh, it's, it's like you were, you were going to Magazine Luiza store, physical store, and it was uh, uh, more expensive. The prices were more expensive than uh, in their Online. channel. Yeah. I remember you know, visiting with you, I think uh, one of the, Magazine Luisa stores, uh, I believe it's in Sao Paulo, right? Yeah, in Sao Paulo, when you deliver yeah. a keen boat, a really good one yeah. on our thank you. intelligence. Three years thank ago, let's say, thank you. Uh, yes, uh, you good memory, yeah. And yeah. Uh, that is interesting. How did they manage that price differential between online and offline? Didn't co consumers really uh, uh, hey, you know, have a backlash over that? Because typically they expect price integrity, right? Yeah, yeah, but there is a catch because at that time they had only 15% of overlapping of multi-channel customers, if you will. Okay. So basically they were mark they were they they were offering different channels to different uh, consumer Customer. profiles. So okay. uh, they were so they, they were able to to grow profitably because of that. Okay. You know? But now are they uh, are the prices closer or integrated across the channels in Magazine Luisa? Yeah, this is a good question, Venki. Yes, and they had planned to do all of that because they were basically rebuilding margins. They were taking the opportunity of having different customers to different uh, that would go to different channels, uh, and they were rebuilding margins by launching, for example, their marketplace, their platform business in 2016 or 17. If I'm not wrong. So basically, uh, now they make much more. Uh, they make 
more money selling their products through the as a marketplace. Yeah, they don't have. This the, no, it's a negative working capital business, and uh, and they were able to rebuild margins in a way that now that the overlapping has increased and multi-channel customers now the same customers are going to uh, all the channels. channels, all the channels. Now they are ready to decrease their in-store price, for example. That's good to know because uh, it's very similar to Amazon. Amazon's 58% of Amazon business today is from the, its marketplace platform, our third-party sellers. And so how, do, how are they competing with Amazon right now in Brazil? Um, Magazine Loza. Yeah, it's a very tough competition because Amazon has announced new distribution centers, for example, in Brazil. And also, you know, they have Amazon Prime. And this is, a, <laughs> this is really important in uh, attracting loyal customers, for example, and offering uh, lower ch- shipping Low. fees. Uh, but Magazine Louise, on the other hand, they, uh, they were acquiring, for example, last, uh, in the beginning of this year, they, they acquired nine companies within nine weeks. So wow. yeah, logistic companies, advertising companies, uh, you know- And in, some technology companies too, right? Yeah, yeah, they developed their own technology actually, Magazine Luiza, and they acquired Netshoes, for example, they launched a new vertical with a more of, you know, uh, uh, frequent uh, products like shoes and uh, uh, sporting goods uh, con- that consumers shop more frequently. So. Basically, they were trying to sell more frequent categories right now. They are trying to curate all the customer experience and to control all of that. Uh, They're delivering a really good experience. They have more than 1,000 stores in Brazil. Amazon uh, doesn't have any store in Brazil. physical store, yeah. Physical stores, yeah. yeah. So they have 1,000 physical stores that they, uh, they, the same as Target did in the past, they turned their stores into shoppable distribution centers. So basically they have more than 1,000 distribution centers. If you're centers, that's, that's awesome, that. yeah. And I'm sure they must be, yeah, that, those stores must be going through a rough time with COVID, but because they are digitally uh, transformed, they are in a better position than many other retailers, right? Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, this is fair okay. to say. This is fair to say because, because they had accelerated the digital transformation before the pandemic. So retailers that, on the other hand, retailers that were in the middle of this digital transformation, uh, they got stuck. Yeah. They are suffering. They are suffering. Yeah. That's, so that brings us to this idea that, uh, you know, digital disruption, you talk about de- decoupling. How is the ecosystem in Brazil uh, with respect to that? I know that. Uh, Brazil used to have um, a very vibrant uh, startup uh, culture. And uh, what I know is that uh, about three quarters of all the VC funding in Latin America goes to Brazil. So uh, that that speaks volumes for the uh, strength of the uh, venture capital investments over there. So how's the ecosystem right now? Yeah, it's under development, I would say, Venki. We have some unicorns, for example, in the uh, financial service market, for example, Nubank is one Nubank, of them. I've heard of it, yeah. yeah. Then I, I, there's nine, 99 Taxi, and then there is, a, uh, yeah. isn't that mm, mo, um, Mobile, or it's a mobile uh, startup company, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have uh, 99 Taxi and Easy Taxi, uh, competing against Uber, 
Uh, right. So how are they all doing? They must be probably, um, uh, and then iFood is also there. I heard about iFood, um, right? Are they all probably uh, giving lots of hopes for lots of entrepreneurs to start up newer and newer ventures, going back to discovering um, breaks in customer value chain and decoupling some of those things? Is that how uh, these startups are doing in Brazil or, or how are they really discovering these ideas? Yeah, uh, actually they are discovering this idea uh, by learning <laughs> from what happened in the US and some yeah. of the startup businesses are actually copycats. So if Copy you take cats, a look at, uh, for example, in the US you have Birchbox uh, right. that decoupled the activities, for example, by offering uh, when consumers, uh, consumers didn't have to go to Sephora stores to try out and test out new products because it's a subscription based model that they would send uh, the product for you, a sample size products. De right. uh, uh, so they decoupled the activities between, you know, choosing and purchasing. Um, and we have in Brazil, Glambox, for example, which is a, a copycat. Uh, it's the same as Birchbox. We have also um, uh, some other companies that they are, you know, uh, keeping their radar on, uh, trying to to see, uh, for example, uh, for example, even even Philpack uh, in the US. I found out by talking to, a, 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 to some VCs two weeks ago that there is a copycat just getting started in Brazil. So basically, one thing, uh, one way to go is to uh, copy some ideas because some companies, startups in, in the US that have been growing, they didn't have time to, you know, to expand geographically. Right, right. So this is one way to go. Another way to go is by looking at uh, deeply into consumer pain points, specific pain points in, in, in Brazil, like right. new bank that you mentioned, because right. try to open an account in Brazil, Venki. It's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard. You cannot believe in the bureaucracy, and it's it, it, it's it's really complicated. So, uh, new bank by decoupling these activities, you don't have to go to the bank to have a credit card or to have your 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 account. They were able to grow really fast. The problem is they uh, um, uh, like many startup business. You know, they have been growing, but they are not profitable. So right. uh, we don't know whether they would be able to uh, become profitable one day because here in Brazil, what people says is, ah, don't worry because Amazon, you know, uh, uh, they were not profitable for eight years. So right. uh, we're just following their <laughs> footsteps. Right. Yeah, that is good. But Amazon had a lot of backing, investor backing and VC backing, but I don't know whether Nubank will have that extended lease of life. But let's uh, come back to uh, some of your work, uh, cases on uh, monetization, right? One of the, that brings us to the idea of monetization, right? And you have a case study on monetizing insurance at Trove. Uh, tell us something about that. Uh, what is Trove and uh, how is the insurance space and what are the challenges of monetization there? Yeah, sure. Uh, yes, I have a case study on Trove, which is a uh, a startup in the Silicon Valley, and they are trying to disrupt the insurance industry. Uh, basically, they offer uh, micro-duration insurance, and also uh, that you can purchase for, for any item, for example, for your camera, for your with the click of the finger. So basically, 
they have this beautiful platform that you don't need to go through all the you know all the the traditional uh, to to go through all the traditional consumer activities in order to have your insurance or to make a claim or to claim or even to to cancel your insurance. It's like oh I'm gonna have this I'm I'm traveling to Rio de Janeiro. It's not safe there. I have my camera, so let's just hire this insurance for a week, for example. It's so convenient uh, to consumers. They basically started their businesses uh, actually as a, 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 a platform connected with retailers in order to organize people's belong, for example, um, electronics products. And then uh, Scott Walchek, the, the, uh, who is Drove CEO, he uh, was in the middle of a trip, a uh, business trip, and uh, uh, Australian uh, reinsurance company approached, uh, called Sunset, approached Scott and told him, hey, this is a good opportunity to offer insurance because you already have this data, this consumer data. So, uh, so, so basically they, they test out uh, this idea in the Australian market, it went uh, I mean, it, it worked really well, and then they moved to other markets such as the uh, UK, Japan, and then they got the licenses to operate in the US with uh, a reinsurer called uh, Munich Re. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So basically, they are a platform. They don't take the risk <laughs> because, uh, uh, but uh, so the monetization, the difficult part is. Uh, to under, because imagine it, it's so uh, expensive to acquire a new customer, for example, right. in the US for insurance, they right. were spending a lot on customer acquisition right. and digital marketing, but right. the CV, the customer lifetime value was really low because right. you know I, I, consumers were hiring the insurance for a week, for a month, for right. not for the whole year, for example. Right. And you know what happened? High uh, customer acquisition costs, low CLV. <laughs> it's difficult. So, so, so how are they managing that? How are they managing that? They were trying to think of new vertical, for example, and new, uh, under this concept of open innovation, trying to help and to collaborate with other companies, such as uh, car rental companies, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to make all the insurance policy very easily to reduce uh, to reduce time and effort uh, from consumers to rent a car or even autonomous vehicles, for example, they were trying to have uh, to offer insurance for, for car passengers, for example, and right. to cope with uh, retailers offering that would offer extended warranty, for example. So they were trying to build partnership in order to create new revenues streams uh, out of these partnerships. Okay, sounds very interesting. You also have some work with uh, building a new online marketplace, the OLX uh, uh, story in Brazil. So tell us something about that. What is the OLX and uh, what are some of the insights from that study? Yeah, yeah, this is a good one, Venki. Uh, OLX, uh, which stands for Online market, uh, uh, Marketplace. Exchange. They were, uh, exchange a marketplace. They were... Um, they were actually uh, founded by uh, a former Harvard student from Argentina, 
And uh, the idea was basically to become the Craigslist of the rest of the world. Right. <laughs> so basically the idea, by, uh, the idea was, uh, was uh, to so offer... Sorry? Classified business. It's a classified business. Yeah. It's a classified business. It's a classified business. And uh, they were able to grow in markets such as Brazil and India. And in 2016, Brazil became the largest market for OLX. Uh, and OLX was really strong, uh, for example, when selling uh, used cars, for example, and in real estate business. Right. These are the two main verticals they have. And uh, they were able to, you know, to change a little bit the culture in Brazil and encourage people to sell their uh, items, their used goods, for example, and items. Uh, they invested heavily on advertising, TV advertising, for example, not only in uh, digital marketing, trying to, to encourage people to do that. And uh, they were able to engage both uh, consumers and also private and professional sellers. So basically, they were able to have really high traffic in their uh, websites, and uh, they were trying to grow. And we approach in this Harvard case study uh, how can uh, um, uh, digital businesses grow. For example, uh, they they could grow by by launching new verticals. Right. They could grow, grow by uh, going and, and uh, you know, Adjacent offering spaces, spaces. Yeah. yeah, for example, payments. They didn't offer payments. You have to, uh, to, to, in to have an in-person meeting with uh, the seller in order to pay and to get the product. So basically right. uh, moving into these adjacencies and uh, the other way to go would be to uh, focus on the core, for example, car sales mm -hmm. uh, and also real estate because the penetration rate was really low in Brazil. And, and, and you can push it further, yeah. Push it further. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we discussed this trade-off, the pros and cons for each of the, the decisions. And as uh, because because it was really dangerous for, for OLX at that time, uh, and this time of decision was really important because they didn't want to, uh, uh, they didn't want to pursue, for example, a strategy such as eBay because you know eBay's had a, a really difficult time uh, because uh, they were competing at the same time with Amazon, but they are also so so they were in the middle. And OLX didn't want to stay in the middle, so basically they uh, started um, establishing partnerships to move into new adjacencies. It didn't work out so well because uh, this, this is a classified business, you know? Uh, people want to meet the other person. They uh, so basically now they are, uh, they are pushing back a little bit their businesses and they made a huge acquisition in Brazil uh, and they are focused on the core right now, the core okay. business, real estate and car business. So that, that raises a very interesting issue between coupling and decoupling, right? One of the things uh, we learned from this decoupling idea is that look for opportunities in the value chains to see how we can decouple activities and then do it very well. And that take steel shares from the incumbent players. But we've seen how companies grow like Amazon, Alibaba and all. They actually get into lots of white spaces, right? Adjacent spaces, other activities and so on. And that's one way to grow. So. 
what is the balance for firms, you know, start a firm, start these ideas, and then they start uh, tasting some success. How do they grow? I mean, do they, if they continue to do what they're good in, they may not be able to grow. So should they couple after decoupling? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a good question. And um, yes, I would, uh, for example, a startup business, they, they often start, for example, with uh, being really specialized into one or two customer activities because they cannot compete with large established players right, right. Uh, by offering all of these activities that, for example, Sephora, Best Buy, or other any other retailers offer. Right, right. But after that, once they have proven uh, their business model and they, they learn how to acquire customers, to engage customers, uh, and also to make money, uh, they, they Keep have Keep them to... loyal, yeah. Keep exactly. them loyal and increase the uh, lifetime value, right? Yeah, right. yeah. Once they are able to do that, uh, what is next? And uh, of course, you can launch new verticals. For example, it's like a, a, a building. You 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 are going to, uh, you know, build another floor and another another one. But uh, what Thales and I, what we have been seeing is that one way to go is to move into other customer uh, adjacencies and to recouple the activities that were once, uh, you know, uh, decoupled. Once decoupled. Okay, good. Yeah, exactly. So, so the, like it, looks, it looks like a, a, as soon as you do this, somebody else will come and decouple some of them and do it better than you. And this cycle goes on, right? Probably, right? Because uh, it means that you have to be 24 by 7 customer focused or centric. Otherwise, this might, the danger of you getting decoupled is high, right? Yes, yes, yes. It, it's true because otherwise you were going to, you know, uh, acquire new startups, for example, that were, uh, that started to compete with you. And just by acquiring new startups, this is not going to work well. Right. Uh, and what we learned from Alibaba, as you mentioned, yeah. and other digital players like Amazon, what we learned is that if, uh, uh, and this is a little bit different in strategy because uh, sometimes the new uh, customer adjacency is different from the core business. So uh, it's completely different. For example, Alibaba, they have uh, so many different businesses like Alipay, uh, the B2B, B2C, and C2C marketplace. They have logistics company. They have, uh, you know, even uh, uh, they manufacture devices. <laughs> so it's really difficult to explain that if you go back to the books in the early uh, 80s, for example, that were explaining how companies were growing by launching uh, new new uh, businesses. The, the diversified businesses. They used to call it diversification. But here there's a common thread, which is the consumer or the customer is the same. So you, they are getting into spaces of the same customer, the activities that they do and the needs that they have outside the core product, our core business, right? And so there is some uh, some thread in here, except that it's hard to pull it off because you have to have domain knowledge in newer and newer things, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's really difficult. And uh, but but one of the things is that start, new digital businesses, for example, that are growing, they have a more uh, they have less problems in terms of, you know, um, uh, culture and adapting themselves into this new environment. Right. So 
probably this is one thing and they have been receiving large investments. So probably this is one aspect. They, they, they still have a closer relationship with customers that traditional players, they were actually losing touch with uh, right. customers. Okay. So uh, that brings met, us back uh, to, that brings us back to your old uh, description of yourself as a relationship builder, because that's ultimately customer relationship is very important, right? So that's good to know. Um, now, we've come a long way discussing a lot of things. Where do you see what are the biggest opportunities for Brazil going forward in the maybe five to 10 years? Uh, well, for Brazil in this, this new digital ecosystem and environment, I would say that is, um, it is to understand, for example, from a marketing function perspective, it is to understand that marketing has become more important than ever, but more decentralized, I would say, within organizations. So if you take a look at how companies right now in Brazil, they consider themselves as omni-channel, for example, companies. Right. But as a scholar, when I look at them, to me, they are not omni-channel. They are moving from multi-channel businesses into omni-channel businesses. So how can companies uh, like uh, Natura, for example, uh, yeah. a company, you, you, you met the, right. one of the responsible for the digital Founders, transformation, yeah. Yeah, Murilo in Brazil. Yeah. Um, Natura, it's a large cosmetic company. Uh, they own the body shop. They right. own... Uh, Avon, not in North America, but in the rest of the world. And, and uh, they were like just a, a direct selling company, a single channel company. And now they, they have store, physical stores, they have e-commerce, they, uh, uh, they, they have mobile sales, they have many other touch points with consumers. And it's really challenging to manage uh, all of these touch points. But in Brazil specifically, as you as you you asked uh, specifically in Brazil, I would say that companies they they have been enjoying this opportunity of having different customers uh, using different channels. But after the COVID nineteen, what will happen is that is we are going to have more multi-channel customers and. I don't know whether they are really well prepared for that because they were in the middle, uh, all companies trying to become omni-channel companies, they were in the middle of this transition. And they are, I, I see them as being too focused on technology. And I, as I mentioned, uh, for example, the CIOs and all the technology guys are actually leading all of, uh, have been, uh, you know, uh, uh, trying to 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 uh, take all of this omnichannel approach forward, and sometimes they forget they forget that, that marketing is important and they need to right. be customer centric. So I would right. say that this is a an opportunity in Brazil. Right. That's a great uh, prediction that the good opportunities come customers being customer centric in Brazil in the next five to 10 years. So uh, we're almost coming to the end of the show. So in the last few minutes, uh, we have a very good uh, uh, our target audience comprised of students, former students, entrepreneurs, uh, executives, uh, other stakeholders. What would be your message to them uh, for the future? If there are any things that you can see from your crystal ball and say, hey, 
you need to be f- focusing on these things going forward to the future. Okay, uh, starting with scholars, I would say that uh, we, uh, an important message that I've been, you know, learning and trying to apply to my, my professional life is to develop research that focus on uh, relevant business problems. And I'm trying to build thought leadership content, not only with uh, research papers, because uh, to me, uh, research is a mean to an end. It's not the end. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, we need to, to be relevant for, for executives, especially in retailing, because it changes so fast. It's so dynamic. And uh, retail companies, they need, due to these, all of these transformation, digital transformation, technology, uh, customer changes, uh, it's, it's been changing. Uh, they need uh, to, to, they can learn from us and we can help them to solve their problems. So I would say that uh, the collaboration with retail companies and with uh, you know, consumer good companies and technology companies would be critical and uh, both sides could benefit from, from, from a good collaboration. And again, uh, from, I, I'm, a good message is that research for me is, uh, to me is a, a, a mean to an end and uh, we need to ca- cause social impact as we often say at uh, FGV in Brazil, for example. Excellent. That's a great message that we have to do relevant research that would be impactful in the society. And also that comes about by building collaborations among the different players in the system. Thank you so much, uh, Leandro, for your insights and for the valuable time today. I enjoyed talking to you and I benefited from that. I'm sure our viewers and listeners will also do that. Uh, Good luck for you going forward in your research uh, and Uh, the cases that uh, you are planning to write for the future. I'm really looking forward to reading them in the future. Thank you so much for today.